You are listening to the Quite Useless Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Quite Useless Podcast. My name's Jordan Shaw and I'm joined again by my co-host Poppy Laroni. Hello. Bobby just said that I do the do the intro the same way every time, so I've deliberately mixed it up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm now in hysterics over here on the other side of the desk. <laughs> it's nice to see you again. How are you doing? I'm fine, how are you? I'm alright. How how is the juggling going? Um actually not as well as I've been doing it every day, like making a point of doing it every day from the start of January. And that was your New Year's resolution to learn how well, to juggle. It was I just wanted to learn stuff new this year because I'm not in education anymore and I've right. kind of been in education my entire life and it feels weird not to learn things. So I happened to get given juggling balls on New Year's Day. No, on New Year's Day actually. So I took it up. But it's kind of slipped to the wayside. I can do it, but I'm not to the point where I can definitely do it without dropping them yet. How long does it take you to get proficient? It's supposed to take you a week. Okay. I think it took me a wee bit longer it's than a week. But, yeah, so, it's, I mean, you start with one ball and then you build up to two. And once you get them going... How do you juggle one ball? Well, it's really just throwing in an arc between your hands, right. but it helps you get the right arc. But then I got to the point where I could do three, but I could only do, like, one round. And then I need to stop and do it again. Right. <laughs> and stop and do it again. But it is really about, you just kind of have to, like, throw caution to the wind and throw the balls into the air and do it. Like, it is quite... Quite strange. I'd quite like to learn juggling because I don't have enough party tricks. Like my only my main thing that I could do at parties that's that's interesting is, you know how like when you yawn, sometimes like like a jet of water, a jet of like saliva sprays out your mouth. Oh, you can do that on command. You can do it on command, yeah. <laughs> so maybe I should like try and pick up juggling as well, something I'm really more good sort of socially acceptable. Yeah, I'm really good at like balancing things. So I thought I'd yeah. like, add to this kind of like circusy esque feel. Um, I, do, I just like do everything so that I can use it in a show at one point. Yeah, it's, like, it is something else for the CV. Yeah. I feel like though, like the the effort to sexiness ratio for juggling is like completely off. Like you have to work quite hard to to learn a skill that is just not really that cool. Yeah. Martha laughs at me for yeah. ages, and then I like drop one on her and she'll be raging. Like it's not. I tried to do it with peaches at my mum's house uh, on Saturday. That's quite a sexy and, fruit. But it didn't go. <laughs> it's like bruised peaches. Right? And it's like the the like more difficult it gets, the less sort of sexy it becomes as a talent. Like already, like it's juggling is like a five on the sexy scale. If you're quite good at it, I love that so you've like, got this whole scale in your head. Like this is news yeah, to me. But like the minute you introduce a unicycle into the picture, it, it completely drops. The harder it gets, okay, the less cool juggling is. Whereas like the saxophone or something, that was quite a cool instrument yeah. to learn. I know someone who uh, he's like twelve and is learning the saxophone and his main object is to sort of get girls or whatever. well one of my other New Year's resolutions it was very I'd love to learn how to play the violin but mm. I don't think that's going to happen this year because I still live with people and like to practice the violin around other yeah, people yeah bad there's nothing worse than a bad violin yeah yeah well, how many instruments can you play? I can play guitar piano and ukulele um I'm yeah I'd quite like to get a mandolin because they're like cheap is that a string instrument? Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's yeah, it's kind of similar sizes to a ukulele, but it's got 
double strings really close together. Um, it's the one that they play on Mumford and Sons. You know, bling, bling, bling. Yeah, well, bling. I heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Is it like the sound like a banjo? Yeah, ish. Um, it's more guitar-y than a, it's not quite as like twangy as a, a banjo, but I don't know. I just like want to pick stuff up now. But then I'm like, I should really just go and actually learn the instruments I've been selfish taught. Like to become really good at them. Well, I'm not even really good. Just like to be good, like to be like substantially all right at piano would be nice. That was what, well, I like, watched La La Land really made me want to. They would play the piano. It really made me want to dance, as does most musicals, though. I they don't even dance to... much, innit? I know, yeah. but even what they did do, like, all that kind of, like, tap, footwork, or even just the posture of it all, like, they just move in that kind of way. I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand it. I'd love to be able to control my body in, in yeah. any way at all. I was, like, so bad at dancing. We were on a show together, and... 2012. Oh yeah, we did say we were going to talk about how we knew yeah, each other. This is, this, yeah, that was a segue Sorry. there. That you've just flagged <laughs> just it up. But it was like off. a seamless connection. Yeah, we were on a show together in like 2012 uh, and I had to dance. And I was Jordan like, was the lead in this show, I might add, and it was a musical. <laughs> I was so bad at dancing that I decided to just sort of make it part of my character. like Because I, I had no other option. I, I couldn't do it properly, so I just had to make it look like I was being deliberately bad. And people did ask afterwards, so were you, were you deliberately doing that? Was your character bad at dancing? Did they really? Yeah, a well. couple of people said that to me. And I was like, I don't know whether that means I've succeeded or not. It was a rather an achievement to have got through that show, given that I can't sing and can't dance. I had you like can tw- sing fine. I had like 12 songs. I'm better than I was. I wasn't that good then. I think I got better having done that. I think you were good in that show and then maybe not so good in the next one. What was my next one? I can't quite remember. <laughs> but I remember being like... Was it The Gates? Something like that. Yeah. Or was it Music of Strangers? No, I wasn't on that. Were um, you not? No. What was the one... wasn't asked to be on that. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up again, Bob. Sorry. <laughs> I had, in, in Back to the 80s, which is when we did in 2012, I had to sing in... I did... Uh, what was it? Bon Jovi, Living on a Prayer. I had to sing No, that. it wasn't Living on a Prayer. It was, was it not? Shot Through the Heart. You Give Love a Bad yeah. Name. That's Bon Jovi, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. I had to sing that in like the high note. I didn't get it once. My voice what cracked both times. I'm not doing no, it. I don't know. I don't remember. I just remember there was a bit that I had to go up really high. Uh, and I failed. Yeah. Completely. Completely ruined it. My big solo in that was Total Eclipse of the Heart. Yeah. Um, I found that quite easy because I had to sing that as well. I had the yeah. male part and it was really low. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. I considered that song like a break. I was just annoyed because Jordan and I have known each other since primary school and we weren't in the same cast for our final show together and that was quite sad. But the person, yeah, because it was divided casts, um, but the person who played Poppy's part in my cast was like barely ever in. So I was always rehearsing mm. with you. So now when I think back to it, I feel like you were, I was singing it with you. Oh, but that's it, nice. I, I always think of doing it with you because I, I don't, the other person was barely ever there. Yeah, I've had that experience quite a lot of times where I've been double cast with somebody who, through a variety of reasons, just doesn't really turn up to the rehearsals. And it's the most frustrating thing. Because it's like you're not getting credit for doing all the work. Yeah. Or even double the work. Like, because the strain in your voice, the strain in your body, twice as much as it is on anybody else's and you're not getting the credit for it. I suppose you get you get more practice, is not it? Whenever I, I, don't, I don't know if I, this is everyone's experience, but certainly being in a show that was double cast, the, 
one really, really wanted to be in the best cast. <laughs> Got quite, quite passionate of it. It's a shame, though. It's a shame <laughs> that you split up into these like good casts and bad casts. I had a lecturer in college that we were doing George and Barbie, and it was also based off of the Women of Troy. And so she called us two ancient Greek names because she didn't want to have an A and a B or a one and a two cast. She didn't want mm. the idea that any cast was better than the other. And I kind of respected that. Um, but it's not about the names of the cast, but who's in them. Um, yeah. And I find that... I mean, yeah, it's like a show trying to trick people into, yeah, into not believe, competing. Yeah, but, I don't know. Um, like, as long as it doesn't get too aggressive, I guess, a bit of competition is not so bad. If I it pushes you to try harder... I get, yeah, and I think I probably really did benefit from those extra rehearsals. Good. Thanks, Laura. <laughs> Thanks for not coming. I hope your granddad's okay now. That was why she wasn't coming, wasn't it? Her granddad was, was unwell. I don't know. Best wishes to Laura's granddad, if you're listening. Um, shall, we, shall we move on to talk about sure. people who are good at art and singing and dancing? Should I say stuff? we're not good at art and singing and dancing? Well, I'm certainly speaking for myself. <laughs> I haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> I don't know how you're doing in your artistic <laughs> career. But you're in Macbeth soon. Yeah. Uh, an all-female production of Macbeth that is going on at Deaf Connections. It's just a shameless plug now. Yeah, um, it's fine. Get used to it because we're going to get on the director of the show and speak to her about the, the project. Yeah, I think that'll be an interesting chat because um, I'm kind of learning more and more as we go. But I'm one of the witches and we're doing it kind of in a societal shift um, in the future when is it set? loosely in the future the <laughs> we've future, not got like okay. a, a bit, I mean it's not it's the kind of idea that through well this we kind of started the, the concept for it before the Trump election but post Brexit and I think it was kind of born out of that dissatisfaction with the way that politics were going and then I think that's certainly kind of the direction it's not specifically to do with any administration but mm-hmm. it certainly kind of seems to follow a big change where a lot of people aren't happy and that kind of seems like what we're in now um, yeah there's a t- I think there's a tendency to sort of separate art and politics and, and regard them as separate spheres that they sort of don't overlap but that the political, yeah, the political situation has had like a massive effect. I was reading Stuart Lee, the comedian, was working on a new show just now, and he said he had all this material, and then Brexit happened, and he had to just completely change the show well, because the political situation has changed so extensively. I'd seen a show that Rob Drummond had done, and it was my lecturer uh, David Overend had co-directed it with him because they're really good pals, and they kind of work on these shows together. And it was called Wallace, and it was on the week of mm-hmm. the Scottish referendum. And so that was the first show I'd seen of theirs and then I went into a workshop for their next show and it was going to be called Referendum about how referendums work and how they aren't really a good way to decide things for the nation because either way half the amount of people are raging and half of them are really happy. I think there's also, I remember people expressing certainly with regard to Brexit, the idea that a referendum, although it seems it's good, it's direct democracy, you're asking the people what they want, what, what, under what kind of system they want to be governed. The reason we have the, the political system we have and that we, we elect a representative to go to Parliament and vote is so that we don't have to do the homework and we don't have to know about whether being in Europe is better or not. I think and the that, other thing is, is that you're only getting two choices. You're getting 
yes or no in or out. Yeah, and rather it, than our forms. Uh-huh, it's not a, okay, could we have part of this and part of another thing and kind of mix something together that makes the most sense for the, the country. But what was really interesting about when they were working that show was like exactly when um, the Brexit vote went through and they they had to change the show every day. They sat down to workshop it because something else had popped up in the news mm. that just made it a completely altered story. And it's just really, really interesting that that can happen when you do mix politics and art. I think, I mean, everyone is... is not everyone, but a lot of people are very vocal about the, the political situation at the moment with Trump and, and Brexit and stuff. Um, but if, if we wish to, to look on the bright side, if you don't regard that as being a bright side, it might be that this kind of situation in which there is a, a political movement or, or regime that people are unhappy with might provoke artists to make more exciting, vital art in response to it. There's certainly evidence of that, I think, in the Thatcher years, when, yeah. like, comedy, certainly, it may well be the case for, for other art forms, but that was when, like, the alternative comedy movement sprung up, and comedy stopped being something that was made by the Oxbridge graduates of the Cambridge Footlights and stuff, mm-hmm. and, it, and it changed people coming from other universities, or not from university at all, things like the young ones and things, sprung up this anarchic brand of comedy. So, in a way, it, it could be quite, it is quite exciting to, to live in this time and we don't know what's going to happen over the next four, eight, ten years. Perhaps it, dare I say, it will be good for art, despite all the cuts and... Yeah, I think it definitely inspires people to make change and whether that, whether people are doing that in the form of protesting and trying to put money into figuring out a way to get through this or to have it stay the same it, like you know you can either do that or there's a lot of artists that will take the, the subject matter and go this is how I'm feeling about it and I think that's what a lot of interesting art comes out of and there certainly has been a lot certainly on the I mean I haven't seen any pro-Trump art no <laughs> I'd like some to be made just for balance I did read a story about uh, a woman in, in Germany she had a bakery called Trump Bakery and she made some Trump slices for people just to sort of play on the name. She was actually related distantly to the Trump family who came from Germany, and the name was initially Drumpf, I believe, and they changed it to Trump. Yeah, Drumpf. Well, um, that's actually quite fun to say. Drumpf, yeah. You should try that. <laughs> um, it, uh, yeah, she made these Trump cakes, uh, and she only sold them for about a week because she couldn't sell them. No one was buying them. Jesus. So maybe the maybe Trump part wouldn't be very successful. But the anti-Trump art, there's been a lot of it made uh, in the last couple of weeks. The new Gorillaz song, Gorillaz have finally come back after, when was the last album, like 2010 I think, was was Plastic Beach, and then released The Fall, which was like 2011. But they've finally come back with the first song off of what, I think it's going to be off the new record, um, Hallelujah Money. And thank you, my friend, for trusting me. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, money, Hallelujah, money. Mm-hmm. It's provoking some some interesting responses. What did you think? I enjoyed it. 
Yeah. I, I liked the guy that was singing. That was my favourite part. Like, it was kind of soulish. Benjamin Clementine says, yeah. He won the the Mercury Prize, I think, in 2014. Okay. Um, he's an interesting guy. He uh, he taught himself um, the piano uh, just by listening to it, listening to people play music. And, and I'm so jealous of people with that kind of skill. <laughs> I know, it's just sort of astonishing. Um, he, and he used to, like, bunk off school in order to go to the library and read dictionaries. Um, at least this is what it said on this like little clip of an interview of him I watched. But like, I questioned how, how how often he bunked off school to go and read dictionaries. Because I've tried to read dictionaries and they are boring. Like, I bet he only did that once and then he's like trying to make himself sound clever by saying he did that every day. Maybe. Because they caught him out. The, the teachers told his parents that he was going uh, to school. But, you know, he's done alright out of it. He's become very successful. Um, obviously, lyrically, musically, uh, doing very well. And I think he, he, to that song, he does bring a, a sort of it's got a sort of demented spirituality about it that is quite appropriate in the moment, I think, when people are anxious and, and fearful and confused about about what's happening. It feels rather fitting. I thought the start was quite weird, because it's got that kind of odd, not musical part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of... Not this, it kind of, it brought me closer to the making of the music, I don't know if that was the intention, but it felt almost yeah. Brechtian in what we do in Brechtian theatre, it felt like that for music. Like, here's a wee bit of the before. You thought it was pulling, pulling back the curtain? A wee bit, yeah. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but I felt like we heard the sound waves before we heard the music, if that makes any it's sense. For me, it kind of, I don't know, it makes it seem like it's... Like a news broadcast or something? Like yeah, I was just going like to say, it feels a, bit, say. it feels a wee bit dangerous almost. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, it comes back to Minds in Advanced Drama, this is a while ago. You had me read out The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. It kind of brings me to that kind of feeling. It's got, yeah. It that, feels like a movement. Yeah, it's almost like a poem. I was talking to someone about it and she, she referred to the song as a poem. And you could definitely see it that way because there's no... It's kind of you could imagine them being separate. You could imagine the vocals and the music being separate. They don't really fit in together. And the <laughs> music, it doesn't really have a melody or anything. Yeah, it's just um, kind of. It feels like stuff is kind of strung together. And it's it's provoked some quite intense reactions from from Grillis fans and from music fans in general. I've noticed quite a few people say like, object to it on the grounds that it doesn't fit into the Grillis style. Um, but this really frustrates me when people say this about musicians. It's like people have been making music for years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. specific bands make music over a long period of time. Their music is going to change. Especially Gorillaz. Like, I'm not really sure what the Gorillaz style is. If anything, the Gorillaz style is not having a style because they change so massively between albums, between between songs even within albums. Um, but people are really, really angry. I've actually I went onto YouTube and look, looked at the comments to get a kind of sense of, of what people mm-hmm. are saying about it, and people are very cross. Um, disappointed is not even close to the word I would use. Confusion, even anger, come to mind. What is he thinking? I just don't. And that's get it. that's for someone who said that they were a Grillas fan. Another person says, every time he says Hallelujah, money, my d- grows an inch smaller. <laughs> 
quite that's quite intense. Right? Yeah. I've never listened to a song that It's quite impressive. That, that. The, the power of music, isn't it? Yeah. This is terrible. I would rather slam my d in a toilet seat than hear another three seconds of that. Is this really what you're reading that <laughs> Yeah, we've got on these on YouTube. YouTube are obsessed with d apparently. Yeah, a lot of phallic phallic references there. This one's really intense. This is so demonic and satanic. How do people not see that? Like, seriously. I want to cry because my brothers and sisters of this world are so blind. Please pray if you see this comment. Please. It's not that bad, is it? It may not be your thing. It's overreaction to music. I, I mean, I guess I can... I can see why they think it's demonic and satanic. I don't think it is, but it it's not something that's comfortable to listen to. No. But even then, I just don't understand... I mean, obviously millions of people do this. But I don't feel the need to dislike something and then put it online that I dislike it. No. Do you know what I mean? It just doesn't add to anything. If I if I write anything online, I'm writing, this was amazing, go and check this out. Please, everybody, check this out because I really, really enjoyed it. I would never comment on a YouTube video and go on, this was horrible. I don't know. Uh, maybe these... I mean, there are a lot of people that, that sort of comment on these videos and, and say rather horrible things. I don't maybe they but feel what that they, does it achieve? Maybe they feel that they're entitled to to be entertained or, or to, to have everything be made for them and then when they don't get that they feel they have a right to complain. Do you know that way if I like, if I stick on a piece of music on YouTube, if I don't like it in the first thirty seconds I'll put on something that I know. Yeah. I'll click away. Why waste the time listening to the song and comment on it at the bottom? I think people just really like to argue with each other. But it's certainly not the mindset I've got about the internet. About I don't know, yeah. I wish I could provide some insight, but I don't understand it um, at all. I think but what is quite good is I, I went to look up those comments deliberately just to see what people were saying, but I had to take off a, an extension that I have on my Chrome browser that just blocks YouTube comments. So you, they, just, they just don't come up. Really? So your eyes are not tempted to drift below the, the description. That's which has really been good for my mental health. That's good. You never hear, like, you know when people speak to, like, old people who are, like, 90 years old and they're reflecting on their life. Like, no, no one ever says, you know, I wish I'd spent more time reading YouTube comments. And I don't think we're ever going to say that. So any time reading YouTube comments is probably wasted. Yeah, likely. But back to the music. <laughs> you, were, you were saying that this sort of staticky sound that is at the start of the song is also present in Father John Misty's yeah, song. Yeah, it's at the start of, um... Pure, Pure comedy. comedy. At six. For some reason, when I go to the, yeah. The comedy of man. It definitely does feel like a kind of distancing a bit. It's not. I don't even know if distancing is the right word. It's just quite odd to start a song without. The music, and then to go into the music, and then to end it on a. Well, it does. It does. I suppose hint that it's a manufactured thing. I'm not sure to what to what effects it might do that. And I think yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I think it's probably more startling in the Father John Misty because his music is relatively folky. It's quite mm. kind of let's follow along with this story and see where it goes. And it definitely did feel. Well, seem to make that feel manufactured. What did you think of the song, Ben? Um, Pure Comedy is the title track from his new album, which is coming out in April. Uh, quite ambitious. 
Yeah. In terms of, of what it's about. Yeah, I think both of them, because we listened to... What was the name of the other one? Two, two wildly different perspectives, yes. Uh-huh. I think the lyrics of the two wildly different perspectives possibly hit me a bit more, because it just seemed really to resonate with this period of time that we're in politically. Um, but I think your comedy did the same. Well, the the opening lyric is um, the comedy of man starts like this, and then it kind of takes you through um, the history of, of humanity from birth to the present moment. It's about six over six minutes long. Whereas, like the two perspectives one, hmm. it really like I think it talks about hell in like the first three lines or something, and it's about like the hell that you pray to that I don't pray to, but we're both going to end up there, and it was all very. Very sad. I think it certainly. I mean, I'm looking at the lyrics of pure comedy just now, um, and although it is, it's kind of down about the the political situation at the moment. I think it's also optimistic in a way. It ends saying each other's all we've got. Um, well, which, that's a nice message at the end of a. Which is, I think, these two songs, maybe not so much pure comedy, but they're kind of a departure for for Father John Master, whose work tends to be be ironic um, and quite sort of satirical and, and not so earnest as these ones are I guess it's quite refreshing to to hear someone respond to, to politics in such a sincere way especially for someone who, who you don't usually expect that of yeah it's certainly very kind of the lyrics are very striking you know he says with risen zombies celestial virgins magic tricks these unbelievable outfits it's very descriptive. I think definitely the video is, is worth watching in conjunction with it because it's like a montage of, of different images representing the history of people. Trump appears when he says the word goon. Um, oh, really? Mm-hmm. I didn't watch the video while I was listening to it. Oh, you didn't? It, oh, no, video. I listened to it while I was walking. But um. Yeah. Well, when he says the lyrics, where did they find these goons they elected to rule them? Trump comes up dancing. Oh. Um, I've just seen a brilliant line here it's their horizons that just forever recede that was just lovely and the following line is good on houses for irony their idea of being free is a p- prison of beliefs that they never have to leave mm. so he, um, he's got a message yeah it's very certainly a very good. strong message throughout both of those tracks what did you think um, just musically taking, taking the, the politics and the message aside you said you weren't such a fan of Father John. Yeah, no, I don't. I just. I don't know, it wasn't like. Sonically as beautiful as I thought it would be. What made you think it was going to be beautiful? The, I mean, his name? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> not, I kind of had this perception. No, I know, I just had like a perception of. See, now that you've said priest, my harmony line is going to sound like I'm wanting some sort of godly effect, but it's not like at all. I'm just, I don't know, as a big fan of, say, Bon Iver and the staves, like a lot of what I look for in music is something that sounds beautiful, that has harmonies to it, and you can, there's so much to hear. Mm. I think you're not wrong to expect that of him, because he comes from Fleet Foxes. He's a, drum- course, yeah. he's a drummer in Fleet Foxes who are within that kind of indie folk style. He does have a, a sort of, when I was listening to, to his, his music, um, he does have a kind of unique style that I can't 
it doesn't quite fit in with, with others although he he's a singer songwriter and he plays guitar he does have a sort of unique take on it in terms of lyrics as well it feels like it feels like he's composed the music and written a poem and then he's trying to fit the poem in to the music and I don't necessarily mean that as a, as a negative uh-huh. um, it just gives it a different kind of yeah kind of style and um I guess Father John Misty's kind of a kind of an appropriate name. Maybe it's a little preachy. I think what the difference is is that when you know you're talking about the Staves or Bon Iver or Fleet Foxes, even a lot of the stuff they write about is feelings. Hmm. Whereas this is these two tracks anywhere are very political, so possibly harmonies really wouldn't work with that message. Yeah, also quite abstract. They were especially Bon Iver. Yeah, and it's very like interpretive, whereas this is very much I'm telling you what I think about mm-hmm. this certain situation, and I don't think harmonies would fit there. But I, it's, I, it's just not what I expected uh, to hear from. He also does it with a sort of layer of irony and humour that stops it becoming too tiresome. That I think the listeners doesn't necessarily feel like they're being preached to. No, I didn't feel like I was being preached to at all. I just. It was very, you know, I was listening to it going, oh wow, this is really about these times right now. Well, moving away from the the political work of the moment, um, the XX, which I've released a new album. Yes. Did you listen to that? Yeah, I did. I listened to it a couple of times. I didn't like it quite as much as I liked their first album, or what I remember of their first album. The XX, which came out first in the Yeah. It's got that brilliant intro. Say something lovely. Uh I don't know, I liked it, but I, I it's not something don't I think I would play very often. I think that first album with XX is really one of the one of my favourite albums of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. It was really underrated. And their, their second one, Coexist, uh, which I think came out in 2012, didn't quite get the acclaim that first one did it people rather said that they had sort of lost their way mm. and I think they kind of found it again in in this album um, in as much as it sounds quite cohesive I also thought that a lot of it felt quite samey though there was a lot of lyrics I feel about performing like there was a lot about stage and kind of showing off and getting ready and that kind of lead up to and the process of performing something which I don't know I thought as a performer I would quite like and in reality I didn't very much you didn't like what they were saying as distinct from your evaluation of the it's music. not that I didn't like what they were saying it was just I didn't really resonate with it at all it was very just kind of oh okay like I don't know when people talk about going on stage I'm like oh I've done that like I, <laughs> I think about that and it's a bizarre feeling and it's nice when people try and kind of articulate what it feels like and it certainly I don't know just what they were saying didn't really resonate with me see I didn't really dig into the to the, to the lyrics sometimes I do listen to lyrics sometimes I don't but this album it didn't really the lyrics didn't jump out at me as being a key element I know what you mean when you say that you thought it was quite samey because I think that's quite a key part of the XX's style that they repeat similar elements in slightly different ways which probably c- contributes to the, the cohesiveness of their sound mm. when they really get it right, especially on that first level. I guess it's sort of jazz-esque in that way, 
the, the repetition of, of motifs, although in a completely different style, kind of electronic, smooth, R&B-ish. Yeah, I mean, did you have a favourite track out of the album? Or is it something that you think you listen to as a whole? Yeah, I totally listen to it as a whole, yeah. I don't really... It's the same for the XX, the original XX album. Um, I've listened to that probably at least a hundred times. Um, but I can't pick one song because it, it feels like it it needs to be listened to in its entirety. It really feels like an album. And I know that we're kind of, a lot of people said that we're kind of moving away from the album model and people are increasingly making songs. But I think the XX's work is definitely one that benefits from being listened to. I hadn't heard that about moving away from the album, but I think that's... I mean, I think I've heard a lot of people talking about it and saying that we're, because of um, things like Spotify, people are able to make more choices about what they listen to. They can Uh pick songs and and make their own playlists and things like that in a way that they couldn't before. So that the album may become less of, I mean, you know, it's kind of the form in that, in in the same way that the novel is kind of the form of writing. But that, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Yeah, and it's that just, we might start to move away from it. It's interesting because I think it depends on the artist for me. Like I wouldn't listen to an album of Haley Steinfeld, but I, I was just saying to you this morning that I've listened to that track, um, "Starving," mm. and absolutely love it. Like I, I don't think I could name another Haley Steinfeld song, but I would happily listen to that over and over again. Whereas when Bon Iver releases anything. I need to know the full album inside and out. Yeah, and I would never listen to it. Well, not never, but very rarely do I listen to the odd Bon Iver song. Yeah, I agree. Like, I remember once seeing a, an album that was the best of Pink Floyd. And I was like, you can't, pick, you can't pull out a Pink Floyd song and then put it together with a bunch of other ones from different albums. Because they, their albums flow so beautifully and they're all concept albums and they all have something important to say or something significant to say in the order that they've chosen to be exhibited in. Whereas I've got two best albums that I can think of just now, one of them being Best of the Mamas and the Papas and the other being the Best of the Beach Boys and I think with those really harmonic like backup, you know there's so many different parts to listen to mm-hmm. bands Abba they as all well. kind of fit. Everyone's got Abba gold. Uh huh. They all fit. I wonder why that well. is. Is it something about the pop style? I think all those sound- songs sound very similar, though. Like when you're listening to the Mamas and the Papas, and you're listening to the Beach Boys, you know that one of them's gonna sing, and the rest are gonna mm. go, dun, 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 and that's how the track's gonna go. And then they'll all come together at one point and sing different parts, and it'll all sound amazing. And that's pretty much the same as every track. Maybe it's the, the sameness and the the fact that pop music, and I don't necessarily mean this as a criticism, um, that there's a sort of mould for pop music and a sort of structure that it has to fit into in order to be successful, that it maybe works better when you pick the best of what someone's made. I don't know, I remember when I was a kid I had Steps Gold album. And I thought that was much better than all the other Steps studio albums that I had. Well, I suppose it it does kind of say it on the tin, doesn't it? It's it all gold, the best yeah. ones, like. And I like. I mean, we had a Red Beatles album that was. I don't know a selection of 
brilliant Beatles songs from throughout their albums. And it was brilliant. I think it, I think it, it really does cut out the songs that most people didn't like on those albums. But then a lot of the albums, like actual albums that I love to listen to, they're ones that near every track is perfect. There's a band Motel Raphael that I've been listening to and on their album System there's one track I don't like and all of the rest of them are brilliant. So it's maybe something to do with to do with that. It depends how good the album is for us to want or need a best of. There are definitely different qualities of best of. Though. I remember I went into Woolworths once. Back in the day. Back in the day when we had Woolworths. I bought a Bob Marley best of that wasn't Bob Marley legend. It was rubbish. It wasn't even the best of him in any way. I guess it's subjective, isn't it? If you're going to buy a Bob Marley best of, buy Legend. Okay. It's amazing. Have you got that? No. You must have heard that everyone's got that album. Well, that's the thing. I, I've started rediscovering what my, like, my mum and dad's music taste and what we used to listen to in the car or in, like during the summer or anywhere, really. And every time I hear one of those songs and I'm like, oh, great, that's another one on the list that I hadn't realised I'd forgotten, do you know, that way. And it comes on and I know every word because I've heard it a thousand times. have not listen to it as an adult and Bob Marley was one of them I came on in the cafe one day and I was like I didn't think I liked Bob Marley and now I remember that this has been a significant portion of my childhood <laughs> and it's brilliant when you rediscover stuff like that and the other big one was um, the Eilie Brothers yeah. this old heart of mine which is just the catchiest song on the planet so good couldn't tell you another Eilie Brothers song name but that's the one that we used to listen to. Alright, let's move on from music because we've got a few <laughs> other things to talk about. The Oscars are coming up. Um, it's, it's the 27th of February, I think. But we watched, uh, as research, uh, Hidden Figures. We went to see Hidden Figures, um, which has been nominated for Best Picture. Yep. It's the story of three black women who worked at NASA in the 1960s, set in 1961, uh, who worked as computers and it was weird to hear people being referred to as computers. Very strange. And they provided the mathematical formulas and stuff for the building of the of the rockets uh, and the shuttles before they went into space. 22nd of February. That's the 22nd of February, okay. Um, Save the date. Yeah. Um, we'll find out on the 27th because we'll be asleep. But yeah, what did you think of the movie? It's good. It's, it's one of those movies that is often described as feel-good, which is... Usually, they mean that as a compliment, but um, I don't know whether the greatest works of art of all time would ever be described as feel good. But it is good. It's definitely I enjoyed it. I had a good time during the tours in which I spent looking at it. I thought that obviously quite timely talking about racism in the United States and things like that. And I and I found it really strange because it it wasn't so that wasn't so long ago. It was nineteen sixty one. And to see the kind of racial seg- segregation it's um, in Virginia, which is where it's set, is quite striking. Yeah, I found that it's just it's very interesting and uncomfortable to see something that wasn't that long ago, but that was so obvious. And I think they they did a really good job of of depicting it because it it, it also felt normal though it felt normal it felt like. It kind of felt like the present day, and they made it look like the, the present day. They used present day music quite a lot, uh-huh. but also 
society was so completely different back then and it it really sort of brought home that sharp difference in the way that minorities uh, women and and black people were treated at that time well that's what I really kind of enjoyed about the film actually was that it was about these three black women like mm. it was all about them yeah it really like was. I mean you had what I think scenically when you're watching it is very stark the the difference when you know she's in the room full of white men and she's this black woman sitting down and doing this work and it's just like I mean it's so obvious it's always so obvious it was a really like empowering story about women working hard and doing it and it was it was really nice to watch you say the the, the racism was so obvious and it and it was but it was also if it's not a contradiction to say quite subtle and non-aggressive no one was no one was abusing people for being black or anything like that it was all through the 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 white portion of the cast each yeah, character yeah that's what i mean each character was racist on a on a slightly different level yeah i think Carson Dunn's character um was really being quite racist throughout the whole thing but i don't think she knew she was i think it was definitely the norm at that time that's how it came across anyway it didn't seem like they were particularly over dramatizing anything that happened throughout the the course of the film um but i found a really touching moment when towards the end of the film where she calls uh, dorothy vaughn like she says mrs vaughn and it mm. was that kind of like a nod to i'm sorry for <laughs> treating you less than throughout the course of their time working together I think what there was a particularly rewarding combination between the race for space that sort of animates the film and the juxtaposition of that with the fight for civil rights. Mm-hmm. I thought that pairing mm-hmm. really worked quite well. It brought out a lot of interesting um, perspectives on both things. I found myself wondering why are we why, why why are they worrying about going into space when they haven't got things right on this planet yet yeah and it did feel bizarre that all the white people were concerned with getting to space but the black people weren't even allowed to sit where they wanted to on the bus uh-huh yeah and i think even that fight for education was really moving throughout the film because a few characters kind of go through that they want to learn something and they're not allowed to and eventually get their way and I think Janelle Monae's um, plea to the judge is a very moving but she kind of talks about how he was the first to be a judge in the first university in his family and it's very much the emotional plea but that's how she won it and I think that's I mean but I'm very sentimental but I did really enjoy seeing that fight for education seeing Mm. how people's minds changed and obviously we as a society in America and Britain have improved massively since the 1960s but also it remains so relevant I read a statistic that was quoted in the Atlantic's review of the film that said in, in 2015 they did a, a survey of women working in STEM um, science, technology, mm-hmm. engineering and, and maths and they said that 100% of them without one exception reported having experienced gender discrimination in their workplace but there wasn't one yeah. who hadn't, which is really quite remarkable. And um, we've got a little while to go, I guess. Yeah, so it's quite yeah. It's good that it's been made this film, and um, it may have a positive effect in that regard. Uh, there was a review. It was in it was on RogerEbert dot com of someone who had 
who worked as a mathematician and was reviewing the film, a black mathematician. Um, and they said, I think, that if that film had been made, if they'd seen that film when they were a kid, it really would have inspired them. So hopefully little girls or, or little black girls are watching this film and going, you know, I can become a scientist. I think that's why diversity across film and TV is really important, because it's very emotional to see yourself represented properly in depth. And I feel that's really moving that we're starting to go in that direction. But we do certainly have a very long way to go. I think, yeah, I would say that that was the film's strongest suit. The way that it dealt quite deftly with these issues of gender and race discrimination in a way that felt very, very relevant. Very relevant and very natural. Yeah, and it wasn't um, fierce or aggressive or upsetting. It was, as many have described, very feel-good and inspiring. Yeah, definitely. And although I wouldn't say that it's particularly remarkable in... I don't think the story was, was so extraordinary. The plot was very predictable. I mean, it was obviously predictable in that we know that they did eventually get to space. But also just the way in which the, the narrative unfolded. You, you knew how it was going. There were no real surprises. Um, but still, the way that it was told was really beautiful. In fact, I don't want to say beautiful. An awful word to use. But, um, but it was. like I mean, and there's a very moving part at the end of the movie where... Um, they've got a photo of the three actresses that played the parts and then the photos merge into who the real women were and it is I mean very uh, obvious but it, is, it serves as a reminder that this was a real thing that happened yeah, and real people. it was three real women we didn't fictionise these characters like this is who it was about there's one moment I wanted to bring up just before we, we finish up in the film and I don't want to, to spoil it too much but, but it's right in the middle of the film um, and it's quite a key moment where there is in the office in which they're working there is a, a a sort of symbolic action done by one of the the white characters the kind of boss of the I'm not, sh- not familiar with the, the terms but he was like yeah, the, the boss NASA terms. <laughs> Kevin Costner's character was like the boss of the space programme um, and he does this thing that um, sort of flies in the face of, of racial discrimination. And it's it, actually in one of the adverts. You probably could talk. Can about I say it? All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He knocks down the the bathroom signs that say bathrooms for white people, bathrooms for coloreds, um, and he knocks it down and says, "We we all pee the same color now at NASA." Um, what did you think of that moment? Because I think it was quite an important one. Yeah, I mean, it's undeniably very important. It's. I think what I really enjoyed about the movie and throughout the course of it and you know that's a really key moment in that process is that you see Kevin Costner's character move through a series of emotions and acceptance for the the computers that that work for him it really moves in the direction of acceptance from not very accepting to you know he knocks down the sign and then he gets her into the the big room at the end without spoiling anything too much. Like, it's I think it's quite moving when you see somebody recognise something. I mean, ultimately it was for his own benefit so that she could work longer and serve. Yeah, <laughs> serve well, that, that's the, what I wanted to say. They've clearly that moment is, I guess it's I guess it's simple and what he does, but it's really quite complex and and the implications it has because he he does this. 
rather small and trivial action in the, the wider context of, of segregation and Jim Crow laws in the, in the South. And he does it for his own benefit so that the woman can, can get to the bathroom sooner so she can get back to work. I don't know. I, I'm not really sure what the film was trying to, to say with it. He does such a positive action in terms of asserting racial equality, but he does it for his own selfish reasons. And also the, the tone of the thing was, was really odd. Because I found myself thinking that it was quite funny because of the way that they had depicted her situation of, of needing to go to the bathroom and not being able to do it. Which is actually quite to... serious when you think about it. Like, yeah. She had to walk half a mile there and half a mile back to go to the, the coloured bathroom, which was across the, the campus, let's say. I mean, that's like a working place right to you know like work in a comfortable working environment. But they made it funny. Yeah. So I had a I had an interesting mix of feelings about it, which made it all the more powerful. I wasn't really sure what I felt about it. Was it a criticism of white people's approach to to the ra- uh, racist society that they were living in that they they didn't care about it until it affected them in this tiny tiny way? He he only knocked down that sign when it was getting in the way of his work. I don't know whether it was a criticism of that or not, but I think that's kind of a harsh reality of how change happens because nobody cared when so they've got scenes in the movie where they depict people protesting against the the racism in which they live and that had almost no effect on anybody but something as simple as somebody going to the bathroom made a huge impact and I think that's because change happens when it affects the people who weren't affected by it before yeah I don't know, I guess it was good that it included a, a small action like that that had such such wide-ranging effects. It was it reminded me of the Rosa Parks sitting in front of the bus and that tiny act of, of resistance is now so yeah. culturally and our memory of, of segregation in that time uh, has, such a, has such an enduring place. I really love the part where um, Dorothy's character is pretty much forced to steal a book from the library if she wants to learn. Mm-hmm. But she goes back on the bus and her and her two sons sit at the back of the bus and she explains to them the difference between right and wrong and then pulls out this book that she's stolen but it's it's for her right to education. I just think that's a really like nice thing to teach your kids almost is like because I mean it's really boring it's about the the language in which computers speak to each other I can't quite remember what it's called but she's like I know I need to learn this in order to keep my job so that's what I'm going to do and she starts reading aloud this very boring non-fiction book to these two boys on the back of the bus and I'm just like there was a real passion and desire there that I found quite inspiring also I've sort of remarked upon that in films that are about someone who is intellectually extraordinary in some way that they really really focus on that they focus on the aspects of them that are really quite weird and and odd and remarkable about them but the, the characters in this film were like astoundingly intelligent but they felt so normal and relatable, and they're focused on yeah, definitely their you know their romantic lives, their family lives, and things like that. It didn't make them seem weird. It didn't make yeah. them seem they were, so different from from the average person. Yeah, they didn't feel like they were an anomaly at all. No. They were just very intelligent people. But I think that again, that's like something that that really kind of resonated with me throughout the movie was this like thirst for knowledge. Yeah, I think it really works as, as I said, it's it's maybe not the best piece of film ever made because it's quite predictable um, narratively not 
massively sophisticated, but it is a, a very well-made political piece of work. It's very accessible. Um, Definitely. What do you think of its Oscar prospects as nominated for Best Picture? I, I'm not convinced it will get there, but then I also am not convinced that La La Land will or should. Well, you can never be sure, no. I think no, La La yeah, Land is a better film. I don't know, like... I think, That's just my, yeah, my Scenically, I think it probably was a better film. It did more interesting things with how it was shot and what it told and how they told it than Hidden Figures. But I still didn't... I didn't watch either of the two and go, oh my God, they're definitely going to be nominated. I thought, oh, I really enjoyed those films. Hmm. Great. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, I don't know if it, I don't think it's overly cynical to say that there is a possibility that Hidden Figures received a nomination after last year's Oscar So White controversy, where the people were complaining about not enough black actors being nominated. It might be that that is why it's on the list. We do have a very diverse year this year, so whatever, however that came about, I'm happy because it's nice to see people being represented, and I find it's a lot more interesting stories when you're watching something that's not about people like you. But also being able to see people yeah. like yourself being represented. I, th- I don't think it. Sh- I don't think it will win. I don't really think it should win. Having only seen two best picture films, I think La La Land was the superior film, just aesthetically. But I'm glad it's been nominated um, because it means more people will see it. And purely for utilitarian reasons, I think it will make people happy when they see it, and it, there will be more people happy in the world now that that film's been nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, so also nominated for Best Picture, we've got Arrival, uh, Lion, Hell or High Water, Moonlight, Hacksaw Ridge, Manchester by the Sea and Fences. I feel like the Oscar winners normally are very emotional, really deep in thought, dramatic performances. So I'd be surprised if the feel-good movies of La La Land and Hidden Figures won against something like Fences or Moonlight or Arrival or Lion even, like... I do know, you haven't seen them. But I know what they're about. <laughs> right, okay. I think, like, on a purely story basis, I think they're more likely to win. Well, maybe we'll have a look at them over the next couple of weeks yeah. and I guess we'll find out on February the 27th. So. Well, we'll find out on February 27th because we'll be asleep when yeah, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that just about wraps up the episode 4 of the Quite Useless Podcast. Thank you for listening. Uh, do bear with us over the next few weeks because obviously we're in rather a state of flux. Poppy's only just got on board and we're going to play around with the format a little bit and, and see what works and what doesn't. But uh, do if you have any feedback, do let us know via Facebook, via Twitter, by email at hello at quite useless. Do what is it? What's the email? Yeah, hello at quiteuseless.co.uk. Yeah, it'd be great to hear what you think, positive or negative. Um, well, thank you for listening to the Quite Useless podcast. See you when the next episode comes up. Bye. Bye.